Amen. Good morning again, and uh, I just want to remind those who are our guests, maybe for the first time today, that we have been in a doctrinal series on Sunday mornings that is not like a normal sermon time or a message time, more of a teaching time on the core doctrines of our faith, the essentials of our faith, and that's what we've been going through, and uh, hence your lengthy study guide that you also have this morning, a study guide alone of about nine pages, and you've got about 40 blanks to fill in this morning if you stay with me on everything. And so again, I just want to remind folks, it's not a typical Sunday morning sermon type series, but more of a teaching series on what is it that we as evangelical Christians affirm and believe. Again, basic doctrines, trying to keep it basic. We could do much, much more on each one of these topics that we have been going through. If you don't have one of those study guides at this time, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand because you will need one. I see some, a hand over here and one up there. I appreciate the ushers getting these to our people. Is there still one up here? Keep your hands up, if you would, please, until an usher gets to you. There's a, a number in the balcony that are waiting on the study guides. Any more on the main floor? And I checked with those in the chapel watching the live feed. They indicate that they have them. I remind those watching online at home that under today's live service, the PDF uh, box you can click on that and it comes up for you as well you know I considered being being Memorial Day weekend to maybe uh, back up do a regular message this morning on a Memorial Day type topic and I thought no I'm not going to do that in fact today we're going to be looking at the work of Jesus Christ and of course, the work of Jesus Christ in the Gospels culminated uh, in his death, burial, and resurrection. He laid down his life. He died for our sin. And so when we talk about our men and women in uniform dying, the, the greatest one ever who's ever given his life for us, Jesus Christ, that's what this study this morning is about. And so I thought, you know, in many ways, it's a very appropriate topic for Memorial Day. I can't think of a more appropriate topic. So I decided to stay on course today with our, our study. Any others that are any others that are still waiting on the study guide? Nope. Okay, find Romans chapter 5 in your copy of the scripture and also 1 Peter chapter 3. Romans chapter 5 and 1 Peter chapter 3. And would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? Romans 5, I'm going to begin in verse 12. Last time, you'll recall, we looked at the person of Christ. Today, we're devoting the entire time to the work of Christ. Beginning in verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, 
but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And then over in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18. Simon Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Notice that. Once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Father, we do thank you so much today for the celebration that we have as a church every time we gather together. We can celebrate the fact that through Christ and Christ alone, we have forgiveness of our sins, access into your presence, and we have a blessed, eternal future home with you in heaven. And it's because of what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, we know that the Lord Jesus was a great teacher great healer and did many mighty miracles and he said in Luke 19 he had come to seek and to save the lost chiefly his work was to go to the cross and bear our sin and suffer your wrath against sin die be buried showing that he was indeed dead and raised to life on the third day for our justification and to return to you to prepare a place for us. Lord, we celebrate that each Sunday. We have no eternal life apart from Christ. Every time we gather for the Lord's Supper, we remember his sacrifice and we proclaim his death until he comes. And likewise, on this day when we study his work, we do so with an attitude of thanksgiving. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. And may it be our passion as Christians and as a church to shine your light to others that those who are walking in darkness might also believe and have life. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. As I mentioned last time, we looked at the person of Christ. Today, we will look at the work of Christ. Now, uh, oftentimes, the work of Christ is considered under a threefold division of the offices of Christ. The offices of Christ being that of prophet, priest, and king. Probably 8 out of 10 theology texts that you study on the work of Christ, they will outline things around the three offices of Christ, that he is prophet, priest, and king. And then their chapters on the work of Christ will go on to flesh out each one of those offices. Now folks, that aspect of, of classifying the work of Christ under the three offices goes all the way back to the early church historian Eusebius who lived from approximately 260 to 340. And so what I'm saying, this classification of the work of Christ under prophet, priest, and king has a great deal of antiquity to it. It's been used for many centuries in the church. And so this morning, first of all, let's talk about the offices of Christ. We know that uh, sort of as we introduce the offices of Christ, that Christ is our mediator. What is a mediator? 
a go-between. Exactly, a go-between. A mediator is somebody who stands between two opposing parties. In this case, God and man were at odds. The New Testament says we were at enmity with God and he with us. And Christ is the mediating agent. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says what about a mediator? That there's how many between God and man? There's one. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You can find that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, in the Old Testament, there were three kinds of mediators. And what were those three kinds? Prophet, priest, and king. Yes. Now, Christ fulfills all three of the Old Testament offices at once. At once. Now, what did a prophet do? He spoke for God. He spoke for God. I see some of you are awake this Memorial Day weekend, right? A prophet spoke for God. He was a spokesperson. He was an agent of God's revelation to mankind. Did a prophet speak on his own authority with his own message? Absolutely not. He gave God's word to the people. The prophet's words were oftentimes prefaced by what phrase? Thus saith the Lord. Y'all are on top of it this morning. Good for you. Now, Jesus was the perfect prophet. Most who met him knew immediately that they were in the presence of a great prophet. I think, for example, about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. She recognized that he was a great prophet, but he was more. But he was that. We'll talk about more in a moment, but he was a great prophet. Now, in this case, he didn't simply proclaim God's word. He did that, but again, he's more than that. Christ was the word made flesh. You know, Simon Peter in Acts chapter 3, verse 22, that great sermon on the day of Pentecost, he indicated that Jesus was a prophet who himself was the fulfillment of prophecy. In fact, Peter identifies Jesus as the one that Moses was speaking about in Deuteronomy 18.15 when Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet from your brethren as he raised me up. Now, as far as priest, we know that the Old Testament priest came to make intercession for the people. Ministering in the most holy of places as he did his work. Now, Psalm 110. By the way, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And in Psalm 110, both ultimate kingship and priesthood are promised to the Messiah. Now, what book in your New Testament, if you really wanted to study the most about the priesthood of Jesus and the fact that Jesus is now our high priest, what book in your New Testament would you turn to? The book of Hebrews. Very good class. Y'all are sharp this morning. You must have got up and eaten your Wheaties and had high test coffee, right? Exactly, exactly, the book of Hebrews. The major theme, in fact, of the epistle to the Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is high priest after the order of Levi. No, false. After the order of who? Melchizedek. And so that meant that Christ's priesthood was outside of the Levitical line. 
Because Jesus' priesthood is eternal and unchanging. Now I want you to remember something about this and what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us. The Levitical priesthood was created in time and those of the, uh, of the Levitical priesthood came out of one specific tribe. But Jesus didn't belong to the priestly order of the tribe of Levi or of Aaron. Again, he's of the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7.3 says he is without beginning of days or end of life, remaining a priest forever. And so what God is doing here is he is revealing, uh, he's revealing early on, even in the book of Genesis, that there is a superior priesthood to the priesthood of Levi. In fact, Melchizedek had a royal priesthood because you'll recall when he went out to meet Abraham and Abraham paid tithes to him, Melchizedek was also king of Salem. So he was king as well as priest. And it was unrelated to his lineage or his ancestry. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says that Melchizedek was without father or mother. Hmm, now that's a head scratcher, isn't it? Now folks, this does not mean that Melchizedek did not have parents. It doesn't mean that he was not born and did not die. What the writer of Hebrews is pointing out is Scripture contains no record of his lineage. On the other hand, an Aaronic priest had to depend. They had to be able to show their ancestry to qualify. Now also the priesthood of Melchizedek was superior to the Aaronic order. Abraham, out of whom came the Aaronic order, acknowledged the superiority of Melchizedek when he gave tithes of the spoils of war to Melchizedek. And so again the Bible says that Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As high priest, he offers up himself in sacrifice. And also, he saves us by writing his laws upon our hearts and minds, as well as opening up for us a fresh and living way into the very presence of God. Because we're enabled in some sense to share in his death and life. He takes us not into a sanctuary made with hands, but Christ takes us into the very presence of God. Amen? Hebrews 9.24 Now Christ's work as priest continues even until now as he intercedes for his people at the right hand of the Father. Christ intercedes, the Holy Spirit also intercedes for us. Now Jesus as high priest offers sacrifice for sin but it's not like any other sacrifice that had to be done over and over again. He offered himself one time as the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God. Now Jesus as high priest uh, well let me, let me move on here next to talk about king. Kings in the Old Testament were given their authority by who? God. And yet, did they fail? They all failed, didn't they? Even David. Even David sinned. Now, the promise to us is that Jesus is the newly born king of Israel. We see that in the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke. And the New Testament's going to point out that Christ is King of Kings. What's the writer in Psalm 2 tell the rulers of the earth? Something the rulers of the earth better listen to. What's, what's Psalm 2 say of the rulers of the earth? They take counsel together to do what? To rebel against God, to scoff at Him, 
But God says, I have installed my king in Zion. And kings of the earth and rulers of the earth, you would be wise to kiss him and bow to him and do homage to him. He's king of kings. The Bible says he's seated with God on his throne at at God's right hand. He's the rightful and just king of all of creation. And all of his enemies are being placed under his feet. And Isaiah 9 says of his rule that there will be absolutely no end to it. Amen to that. Now, let's talk next about stages and functions of the work of Christ. Now, here again, commonly, stages and functions will be grouped under two things. The humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. Now, under humiliation, what would we have? We would have the incarnation and the death. The incarnation and the death as steps in Christ's humiliation. Now, steps in his exaltation would be what? The resurrection, the ascension to the Father's right hand. Sometimes we we forget about or underestimate the importance of the ascension, don't we? And then the second coming of Christ. Those topics are grouped under his exaltation. There's one passage in the New Testament that will talk about these two stages, humiliation and exaltation. It's in one of Paul's letters. Does anybody know what that passage would be? Talks about that's the resurrection chapter, certainly. And you're right, it does talk about him being in the flesh and dying. What's that passage, though, classically, we kind of, scholars refer to it as the Christ hymn. You might know where I'm talking about. Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He goes through that pattern of the humiliation of Christ, even talking about his death, even death on a cross. And then Paul ends, time he gets to verse 11 in Philippians 2, he's talking about his exaltation back to the right hand of the Father and how every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So from Philippians 2, verse 5 to verse 11, we see these stages, the humiliation and the exaltation. Now, the functions of Christ will coincide with the offices that we spoke of a moment ago. And so there's going to be some purposeful repetition in pointing this out. When we talk about the functions of Christ, the first thing I want you to write down is revelatory. Revelatory. What did John write in John chapter 1? You know that great passage where John talks about the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us? How does John close that section out in verse 18? What's he say about Jesus and and the Father and us and what Jesus came to do? What Jesus came to come to reveal or to exegete? Jesus, as the Word made flesh, came to exegete or expound the Father to us. What the Father is like. So Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. His his function was revelatory. And this would go along with the prophetic role. As the Logos... He's the light which has enlightened everyone coming into the world. Folks, all truth has come from and through Him. He is truth. He pronounced doom and judgment in pronouncing God's truth. He he uh, pronounced doom and judgment such as in Matthew 11 when he pronounced woes and judgments on certain places. And then in Matthew 23, he proclaimed judgments and woes 
upon the scribes and the Pharisees. But as a prophet, he also proclaimed good news. In Matthew 13, for instance, the parables of the kingdom would be an illustration of this. The good news that's associated with God's kingdom. And then he proclaimed in John 14 the good news that he would prepare a place for his children and that he and the Father would come to the one who believes in him and he would give his followers peace. So he proclaims both bad news and good news. Do we need to understand bad news? We sure do. We need to understand the bad news before we really appreciate the good news, don't we? By the way, that's what Paul does also in the book of Romans. He kind of outlines bad news for both Jew and Gentile. How we're all under the wrath of God and doomed for judgment. And then that's when he introduces the good news of God's solution in Christ. Christ, as revealing the Father, came and proclaimed Bad news and good news. Now, the writer of Hebrews proclaims that Jesus is the highest of all the revelations of God. In fact, turn to Hebrews chapter 1 with me a moment. I want you to read this in your own copy of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 1, and beginning in verse 1, the writer says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And the writer of Hebrews is going to go on to point out that Christ is he's greater than the angels. No angel was ever called a son. And he's greater than Moses, he's greater than the law, he's he's greater than the sanctuary, the temple. He's greater than everything in the Old Covenant. He's the fulfillment of everything the Old Covenant was pointing to. So again, Jesus is the highest of all revelations of God. Now, there is a continuing revelatory ministry of Christ through his church as we proclaim His word to a lost and dying world. And what did he promise? He promised that his presence and his spirit would enable us to carry on his work. And he indicated that the revelatory ministry of the Holy Spirit would would teach them. But yet the Holy Spirit's revelatory work would not be separate from him. In fact, he said the Holy Spirit will glorify me. Now, the most complete revelatory work of Jesus obviously lies in the future because there's coming a time that he's going to return. And at that time, the Bible says, we're going to see him clearly and directly. We will see him as he is, John says in 1 John. What a great day that's going to be. Now, a function of Christ, not only revelatory, but secondly, the agent of creation. In John's prologue, John 1, 1 through 4. In Colossians 1, 15 and following. And in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, that passage I read a moment ago, points out that Christ is the agent of creation. He's the one, when you read Genesis 1, 1 and following, Christ was the agent of creation. He was there. The Spirit was there, hovering over the face of the waters. But Christ was there, the agent of all of creation. And so you see the Trinity from the very opening words of the entire Bible in Genesis 1. And then a a third function, the rule of Christ. Hebrews 1.8 quotes Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Now, as as the second member of the Trinity, we see that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rule over all. Psalm 103, 19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. 
as I've already pointed out, Jesus is described in the Bible as what? King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the ruler of all things. In Matthew 13, verse 41, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is his. That's a bold, bold messianic claim, isn't it? But it was truth. The kingdom of God is his. Now, folks, one thing we need to understand, his rule is both now and forever. There's an aspect now and not yet. He rules today in the universe. He even rules through the natural processes that he's put in place. In fact, the psalmist says the heavens declare the glory of God. He also rules over the church. What, what description in Colossians and Ephesians does Paul give of Christ in relation to the church? He's the head of the church, meaning he rules over us. Also, he indicated wherever men believe in him, there's a sense in which his rule, power, lordship, and kingdom are already present in them to some degree. And so again, there's that tension of both now and future. And when he returns in his exaltation, his rule will be complete. Well, let's talk fourthly here about the reconciling work of Christ. And we see his priestly function here. Not only does he offer the sacrifice for sin to reconcile us to God, but as the New Testament makes abundantly clear, he not only offers the sacrifice, but he is the sacrifice. And again, the book of Hebrews points that out so clearly. And we'll deal with that in a moment even more as we talk about the atonement. And then lastly, under major point two, let's talk about the intercession of Christ. This also would fall under his priestly function. As a priest represented God to the people, so he also represents the people to God interceding before God for them. And you can see that described more in those passages I've given to you there. Let's move on to talk thirdly about aspects of Christ's work. Y'all with me so far? I'm kind of going slow and methodical this morning. Too slow? Is it okay? Okay. So first, let's, let's look at, at Christ's obedience for us, sometimes called or referred to as his active obedience. Now, chances are this might be a section that in all likelihood you haven't given a lot of consideration to. But I want you to remember, Jesus obeyed the Father in our place. And he perfectly met the demands of the law. Perfectly met all of God's standards without sin. Now, if Christ had only earned forgiveness of sins for us, then our guilt would have been removed. But we would only be in the position of Adam and Eve before they had done anything good or bad. Christ had to live a life of perfect obedience to God in order to substitute His righteousness for us in all matters. He had to obey the law for His whole life on our behalf so that His perfect obedience would be counted for us as well. Paul very clearly says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Christ died for us, but he also became our righteousness before God. Jesus said to John the Baptist before he was baptized by John, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
Now, it might be argued that, had, that, 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 that Christ had to live a life of perfect righteousness for his own sake, not for ours, before he could be a sinless sacrifice for us. Well, that's true. But, but Jesus, keep in mind, Jesus had no need to, to live a life of just simply perfect obedience for his own sake because he had already shared love and fellowship with the Father for all of eternity and was in his own character eternally worthy of the Father's good pleasure and delight before the incarnation. But in the incarnation... He also had to fulfill all righteousness for our sake. That is for the sake of the people whom he was representing as their federal head. Unless he had done this for us, we we would have no record of obedience by, by which we would merit God's favor and eternal life with him. Moreover, if Jesus had needed only sinlessness and, and not also a life of perfect obedience, he could have died for us while he was a young child. He didn't need to grow up and go through everything and then die. In fact, he could have been born and immediately been sacrificed. Paul says his goal is that he might be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ. And so it's not just moral neutrality that Paul knows he needs from Christ, meaning a clean slate with his sins forgiven, but he needs a positive moral righteousness that only Christ can impute to him. Now secondly, there's what's referred to as his passive obedience. Referring to his sufferings and his death. In addition to obeying the law perfectly for his whole life on our behalf, Christ also took on himself the sufferings needed to pay the penalty for our sins. Folks, in a sense, Christ suffered his whole entire life. He, he lived his entire perfect life in a fallen world. I want you to think about that. He enjoyed perfection with the Father and came to a fallen, dark world. He endured suffering in the wilderness when he was tempted. Hebrews says that he learned obedience through what he suffered. He constantly endured friction and mockery and sufferings at the hands of the religious leaders. And Isaiah prophesied that he would be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And of course the sufferings of Christ intensified all the more as he drew near the cross. He experienced physical pain and death. I want to read from time to time. I do this. Read a little bit out of Wayne Gruden. Just a, just a short paragraph. Not a lengthy reading this time. But he talks about Christ's pain of bearing sin. He says, More awful than the pain of physical suffering that Jesus endured was the psychological pain of bearing the guilt of our sin. In our own experience as Christians, we know something of the anguish we feel when we know we have sinned. The weight of guilt and conviction is heavy on our hearts and there's a bitter sense of separation from all that is right in the universe, an awareness of something that in a very deep sense ought not to be. In fact, Gruden says, the more we grow in holiness as God's children, the more intensely we feel this instinctive revulsion against, against evil. But now listen to him. He says, now Jesus was perfectly holy. He hated sin with his entire being. The thought of evil, of sin, contradicted everything in his character. Far more than we do, 
Jesus instinctively rebelled against evil. Yet in obedience to the Father and out of love for us, Jesus took on himself all the sins of those who would someday be saved. You hear what Gruden's saying there? If you and me being evil, as the scripture says, as Jesus points out in Luke 11, if you and I being evil... When once we become redeemed and reconciled to God, if we, if we do something horrible, that, that anguish we feel, how much more the perfect holy son of God who's never done wrong, how much more that anguish must have been on him as he was bearing the sin of the world and suffering all of the wrath of God against sin. In the same way that Adam's sin was imputed to us, God imputed our sins to Christ. Now, some would say, hey, that's not f fair. But remember, Jesus voluntarily took on our sin. Plus, God's in a far better position to determine what's fair and not fair, right? Abandonment is another way that Jesus suffered. Remember, all of his disciples fled. And then when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, God had apparently looked away. Because the Bible says God cannot look upon evil. There was the suffering of bearing the wrath of God. Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin which God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. Paul says in Romans 3 that generation after generation God had passed over sin and was delaying ultimate punishment and he was giving those animal sacrifices as atonement as a covering a temporary covering until the next sacrifice had to be made but at the cross all of the wrath of God that had been built up was unleashed Christ bore that wrath once and for all if we had to pay the penalty for our own sins we would have to suffer eternally in separation from God but Jesus didn't have to suffer eternally. He was able to bear all the wrath of God against our sin and bear it to the end. He was the only one who could have done this. In fact, when he knew he had borne the full measure of God's wrath, what did he say from the cross? It is finished. Now, if Christ hadn't paid the full penalty for our sin there would still be some degree of condemnation left for us. But what does Romans 8.1 say? There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Folks, I want you to think about this. If you're with us today in worship and you are outside of Christ, you are still under God's condemnation. Is there an urgency to dealing with that? You better believe it. Because you don't know if that you have the next moment. But in Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that good news? You better believe it. Anyway, the New Testament emphasizes the completion of what Jesus did when he died on the cross. Whatever had to be done to deal with sin, Jesus Christ dealt with it. He dealt with it fully and completely. Now, whether we speak of the active obedience of Christ or the passive obedience of Christ, it's important to see that the atonement that Christ paid had its effect upon God in an objective way before it had its effect upon us. 
It fully satisfied God's justice and holiness in every way. Now, let's talk a moment about the atonement, fourthly. And somebody had mentioned 1 Corinthians 15 a moment ago. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Again, as I said earlier, Christ worked miracles. He was a great teacher, but he came ultimately to die for our sins. The Bible points out that, that there are two causes behind this. The love of God and the justice of God. Both were at work. John 3.16 points out the love, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave. Romans 3, and I pointed out verse 25 a moment ago, really emphasizes the justice of God that had to be dealt with as well. Here Paul says that God had been forgiving sins in the, in the Old Testament, but no ultimate penalty had been paid. And, and this would be a fact that would make people wonder perhaps whether God, some people anyway, whether God was indeed just and ask how he could forgive sins without a penalty. And so both the love and the justice of God would explain the reason for the atonement. Now, as Wayne Gruden points out, do we emphasize the love of God or do we emphasize the holiness and justice of God more in explaining why Christ came to die? As Wayne Gruden suggests, it's probably a fruitless discussion to try to figure out which one's more important. They're both important. The love and the justice of God was on full display in the sacrifice of Christ. Now let's talk about the necessity of the atonement. It's important to realize that it wasn't necessary for God to save any persons at all. He could have walked away. In fact, 2 Peter 2.4 points out that God did not spare the angels who sinned. I suppose he could have done the same with us. But once God in his love decided to, to save, then several passages indicate that there was no other way for God to do this than through the death of his son. Now, we're going to cover more about this under the doctrine of man, but, but we see in Scripture that sinful and fallen man could not redeem sinful and fallen man. A sinful man may lay down his life for others, which would be a great display of love, but there's nothing saving about it in the sense of reconciling men to a holy God. I could die for you, you could die for me. Hey, wonderful display of love. Would it accomplish anything saving before God? No. And so for atonement to be made, there had to be a sinless sacrifice who identified with both men and with God. And Christ is who? He's the God-man. What's this mean? It means if there was going to be a way for men to be fully atoned, their sins fully paid for, God had to do it. God had to do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. God had to provide the way. You remember on the road to Emmaus, while they, were, while they were sad that Jesus had died, Jesus rebuked them and said, 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And the writer of Hebrews also makes it clear. It is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. I debated whether I would give you this last section. And I decided looking through different Theology volumes, even the simple basic one. Charles Ryrie, a basic theology, is, is about as elementary of a theology work as you're going to find anywhere. Even he includes these. So I wanted you to be aware of how the cross has been looked at through the ages in relation uh, to what Jesus accomplished. And in evangelical life today, it's the last one that we emphasize and we believe the last one best speaks for what happened at the cross. And, and this again represents where the evangelical community is today. And I think that's right. It's not saying that there's not an element of truth and a few of these other ones, because there is. I think the last one best says it all, though. But what are the different theories? First of all, the ransom theory. Now, folks, this one was huge in the early church. And among the early church fathers, who were the early church fathers? The leaders of the church that lived after the time of the apostles. This one, was, this one was big. And, and it depended heavily on the passages that speak of the atonement as a ransom. For instance, Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man, Jesus said the Son of Man came to give his life as, as a ransom. Now, this theory regards sinners as the possession of Satan since the fall. Christ on the cross paid the price or the ransom for their redemption and Satan accepted Christ in their place. In his resurrection, Jesus rose triumphant for Satan could not hold him and thus Satan lost both his original captives and their ransom. Now, ransom theories were the earliest developed by the church were, were common in the patristic period, what I just said, largely holding the field until the 11th century. Origen is considered the source of this theory. Gregory of Nyssa was another one. Now, I think, though, what you want to avoid and what Gregory of Nyssa, for instance, did not avoid. But I think what we want to avoid is concluding that the ransom was paid to Satan. Scripture never even comes close to indicating that. I think it's Dr. Michael Horton today. He's a professor of theology at Westminster at the San Diego, California campus. As he says, the atonement of Christ could be described in some sense as a ransom paid to God to satisfy His holiness and justice. I think that's probably the, the better way of looking at it, rather than something was paid to Satan. Then the recapit recapitulation theory. Christ recapitulated in Himself all the stages of life, including what belongs to us as sinners. His obedience substituted for Adam's disobedience and this should affect a transformation in our lives put more simply Christ was the culmination of human history regaining for humanity what had been lost in Adam satisfaction theory again I think there's, there's some truth in all of these right here this originated with the medieval theologian Anselm. Here the sin and disobedience of man is regarded as an affront to the majesty of God. Such an affront requires an immediate satisfaction. But since no man can adequately offer this, only the God-man can render satisfaction and bear the penalty of man's sin. 
by the way, remember in Isaiah 50, 53, that great passage about we all have, like sheep have gone astray, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That, that pericope of scripture ends by saying what? That God would look on that sacrifice and be satisfied. Then the moral influence theory. This was developed by Abelard, a medieval theologian. It states that the death of Christ was not any kind of expiation or propitiation for sin, but a suffering with his creatures to manifest God's love. This suffering love should awaken a responsive love in the sinner and bring an ethical change in him. This then liberates from the power of sin. There's a huge insufficiency in that theory. The next one also a huge insufficiency, and I'm almost done here. The example theory. This goes back to an Italian theologian and his nephew. It states that Christ's death did not atone for sin, but revealed faith and obedience as the way to eternal life and inspiring people to live a similar life. This is a view still held by uh, a lot of Unitarians today. Again, hugely insufficient. The governmental theory. This is traced to a Dutch jurist. And it states that God's government demanded the death of Christ to show his displeasure with sin. Christ did not suffer the penalty of the law, but God accepted his suffering as a substitute for that penalty. Now, number seven was hugely big in the early church, just like the first one, the ransom theory was. Number seven was huge for a long time. The dramatic theory or the Christus Victor theory. It states that Christ in his death gained victory over the powers of evil under which man has been held in bondage. Then in the 20th century, Karl Barth, the Barthian theory. Christ's death was principally a revelation of God's love and his hatred of sin. Again, a hugely inadequate view of the atonement in my opinion. And as I mentioned, the one that most evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing evangelicals would hold to today as maybe saying it best, French theologian John Calvin. Christ the sinless one took on himself the penalty that should have been borne by man. He's the propitiation for our sin, Romans 3.25. He bore our guilt and took God's wrath against sin that we might be made righteous, receiving his righteousness, and so be reconciled to a holy God. One scholar said the most important word in the New Testament is a little preposition, pair, that Christ died for us or in our stead. Now let me just wrap up by simply saying that Christ accomplished for us what we could have never accomplished for ourselves. I hope that's clear to you. Without Christ, a person would be hopelessly lost and eternally lost. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And again, as I stated earlier, if that describes you, if you're outside of Christ, if you're outside of Christ, you're still at enmity with a holy God. And if you die in that state, you will be eternally separated from God. You will suffer His wrath and His condemnation. But at the cross, Christ did that for you and for me. I would think in response to that, any thinking person, any rational person would do what? They would run to Christ. Amen? And that's what you need to do this morning if you're outside of Christ.
and I would assume I'm talking to most people who are in Christ. You're in Him, He in you, as the New Testament describes it. If nothing else, let this hymn of invitation be a time that you just go to the Lord in prayer in gratitude that He did for you what you could never do for yourself. Because of Christ, you have forgiveness of your sin past, present, and future, and he's preparing a place for you one day, and you'll be with him for all of eternity. If you can't be thankful for anything else in life, at least you ought to be thankful for that. Would you stand, please?